This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for Friday, October 4th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Over the years, few people have had a better seat to the political process than Mark Shields. For more than 50 years, he has either been active in campaigns or he has been writing about them. The syndicated columnist and PBS commentator sharing his stories, his insights, and even his good humor. Stories from the campaign trail. And be sure to stay through the end of the podcast when we turn our attention to political humor, including that of John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, Barry Goldwater, and his former boss, Mo Udall. Mark Shields, you have been watching campaigns, been part of campaigns since the late 1960s. As you look at this race in the fall of 2019, where are we? Uh, We're where we've been before, uh, where the the good citizens of Iowa and New Hampshire uh, will exercise uh, their judgment, uh, and it will be totally disproportionate to the outcome. Uh, They will uh, determine who's not going to be president. Uh, and uh, that's that's where we are. I mean, as far as the Democratic nomination is concerned, nobody has won the nomination uh, in either party uh, who didn't finish in the top three in Iowa, anybody who contested, uh, or the top two in New Hampshire. Uh, so somebody who good, uh, scores a solid fifth in Iowa, you can look for them to return to their day job. Uh, so that that's the importance of those two states, and we don't know at this point uh, what what their verdict will be. I, I personally have enormous respect for the, for the process. Uh, I like the fact that they begin in small states uh, where a candidate who is not uh, funded to the teeth, uh, who the sheer extent of effort, energy, and uh, uh, intellect, and, uh, and charisma can reach voters on a one to one to five and, and actually have a critical difference. Um, and that, that's why I will defend those. And the citizens of those two states take it quite seriously. I might, don't always agree with their verdict, but I have to acknowledge and admire the fact that they do take it so seriously. But for Iowa and New Hampshire, it's become big business for them. I mean, they put a lot of effort into their role as the first in the nation caucus and primary. At one point, Steve, when I when I first wrote about this, uh, I figured out with the help of a couple of economists at the University of New Hampshire, it was the fourth largest industry in New Hampshire every four years. And that was before Manchester had its own TV station. Uh, But that was just in car rentals and restaurants and uh, motels and and all the rest of it. Uh, So, uh, no, it it, it is. I mean, it's a a coveted position. I mean, it's it's an enormous responsibility uh, for those two states. And it's safe to say the process has changed a lot. I want to talk mm-hmm. about your own experiences. But first, as you look at this race right now and the role that the debates are playing in mm-hmm. the process before the first vote is even cast, there's already been the winnowing process by the DNC. That's is right. that fair? Is that appropriate? Well, the, the DNC is, is compensating, some would say overcompensating, for 2016. Uh, when there's no no question uh, that they tilted in favor of Secretary Clinton against uh, Senator Sanders, um, and so they, uh, uh, the chairman and and the committee have made every effort to make the process totally open, uh, that everybody knows about it. Uh, it's it's an imperfect process, but it it shows no tilt uh, in any candidate's favor. 
Uh, you know, one can one can argue about the number of contributions being a, a determining factor in whether you're a serious candidate, um, and probably nobody contemplated somebody spending millions of dollars to to raise money. Uh, to raise less money than uh, he's spending on television to raise that money, asking people to send in $5 or whatever. But th- th- I think that's that's the answer. 2020 is to try and compensate for what was an unfair process in 2016. Let's go back to 1968, mm-hmm. because that was when you first became active in campaigns. You yes. worked for Bobby Kennedy. Why? I did. Uh, I, I worked. For, I was working on the Hill for Senator William Proxmire uh, of, uh, of Wisconsin, a, a very admirable public servant who I uh, liked and, and uh, enjoyed my work. Uh, Robert Kennedy was uh, the first and only serious political candidate in my lifetime uh, who was running with the all-out opposition of the Fortune 50 uh, as well as the major leadership of the AFL-CIO. Uh, big business and big labor, uh, both. The OAW was a strong supporter, make no mistake about it, uh, and Walter Ruther. But uh, to, to me, uh, he was unfettered and unbound. That, those, those are two advantages. If he did win, when the usual suspects came across and said, these are who ought to be your appointments on the uh, advisory commission on the regulatory jobs, uh, he was totally independent. Um, I, uh, he was the only candidate... Uh, in in my lifetime, uh, who had uh, as his constituency uh, working class whites and African American voters, it was an, an amazing coalition, uh, and I agreed with him on the war in Vietnam. Uh, so I mean, it was a it was a it was something that I did reasonably well, uh, that I enjoyed doing, and that I felt morally obliged to do. So it was a very happy time in my life. Had he lived, though. Is there any realistic way that President Lyndon Johnson would have let him become the Democratic nominee in 1968? Because he controlled the party apparatus. He, he did. I mean, uh, and that's that's an example of the rules changing. When when Gene McCarthy announced on November 30th, 1967, a challenge of Lyndon Johnson, and I was there in the Senate caucus room when he did so, uh, it was it was a, a very brave thing to do. Because at that point, 75% of the delegates to the 1968 convention had already been chosen. They were in a process. It was a closed process. Uh, It was so closed, Steve, that in Missouri, the Democrats nominated their convention delegates in a bus ride as it was circling the circumferential of St. Louis when nobody else was told about it. It was totally unavailable to public and and to rank-and-file voters. So um, it it was tough. But I I don't think there's any question that once Robert Kennedy, the the night that Robert Kennedy won the California primary, uh, Don Buckner, who covered Chicago for the uh, Los Angeles Times, a a superb reporter, and, and strangely had a great relationship with with Mayor Daley, was in Mayor Daley's presence. And Mayor Daley called uh, Ambassador Joe Kennedy at Hyannisport and uh, announced it it just could not talk to him because he was still paralyzed and told uh, Ann Gargan, who was his nurse, uh, that I'll be with Bobby. Well, if Daley went, uh, I think the Humphrey thing was, uh, Hubert Humphrey would have been reduced to a constituency that, yes, you're right, was of, of elected governors and, and, and party officials, but was basically Southern. That was the resistance to Robert Kennedy. Um, and I, I, I really think that, uh, you know, 
who, who knows, but I will go to my grave thinking that Robert Kennedy would have won the nomination at Chicago that summer. It is one of the great ifs in American mm-hmm. politics. Had he won the nomination, would he have won in the fall? I, I think it, it, history would uh, would tell us that Richard Nixon was a brittle personality, psychologically and emotionally. The prospect of running against another Kennedy in 1968, um, I think, might have been uh, just almost shattering for him. I mean, remember how close Hubert Humphrey came, um, out, overwhelmingly outspent, um, outgunned, uh, questions. I mean, a, a great admirer, enormous affection and admiration for, for Senator Humphrey and Vice President Humphrey, uh, but how close he came. I mean, when he started his race, his campaign was so broke. I mean, just to back up, Hubert Humphrey's campaign treasury was swollen and expanded and filled by people who wanted to stop Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy's assassination on June 6, 1968, meant Hubert Humphrey's money dried up. Um, he began his campaign in, in, as the nominee, having to go around to the reporters and get the money in advance for the press plane in order to that the plane would take off. They were that broke. They could not, in other words, float the, the cost of a press plane expecting to be reimbursed. Um, he was he was just totally, he was bereft. Um, and the fact that he came back 16 points back, 45, 29, to come within a, an eyelash of winning uh, was just uh, just a remarkable achievement. And I and I th- but I think also showed the limitations of, of Richard Nixon as a as a candidate when he was the issue in 72. He was not the issue, uh, which was a, a different race. We are talking with syndicated columnist Mark Shields. So glad to have you in our studios here in Washington, D.C. And let's go to 1976. You were involved in the Mo Udall campaign. And I was. We're going to hear from Mo Udall uh, later in the program, so that's a tease to stay with us in the humor of Mo Udall. But the difference in that race with Jimmy Carter coming in second in Iowa, none of the above came in first, and yet mm-hmm. winning the New Hampshire primary – former President Carter, who, by the way, just turned 95 years old. Mm-hmm. The process was so different back then because he could be Jimmy Who in 1975, the invisible primary, uh, lay the groundwork, and then win in 1976. Those days are long gone in today's media environment. Uh, I, I, would, I would question that uh, or in, in this sense. Uh, there's two kinds of politics, retail and wholesale. All right, for listeners who don't follow politics as closely or as I do irrationally, uh, retail politics is the politics most of us know firsthand, where faithful attendance at wakes, weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs translates into votes. Good old Jim, he's a wonderful guy. He showed up at uh, uh, our sister's graduation when the junior high class went down to the state capitol. He showed him around. Um, it, it's a on a one-to-one, one-to-five, one-to-eight basis. Wholesale politics, is, which is what the presidency is, is where a candidate, particularly a president, is speaking to everybody at the same time. In, in retail politics, you can talk to Mrs. O'Malley uh, about her, her son Bobby and, and, and then go over to the Sons of Italy uh, and then meet the bankers and talk about uh, interest rates. Uh, but in wholesale politics, you're talking to everyone at the same time. Jimmy Carter was the most effective retail politician I have ever seen. He was phenomenal. Uh, in groups of five, eight, twelve people, he he would sit and listen 
and he'd come back and he'd at, at the end or even throughout he'd he'd come back and say, Steve, you grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, you know now, now tell me about it. And he would remember exactly what it was. Uh, remember this: that Jimmy Carter won twelve thousand votes in Iowa. He won twenty three thousand votes in New Hampshire. He won the New Hampshire primary with 23,000 votes. 35,000 votes would not have been enough to get you elected to city council in Cincinnati. I would be willing to bet that Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter between them knew personally 75% of the people who voted for him. He was that effective as a retail politician. He remembered your name. He remembered your children's names. And, and he, he was an intelligent and, and thoughtful man. Don't, don't get me wrong. But that was enormously, enormously effective. Now, was that the only time it happened? No. In 2000, go to the other party. John McCain is absolutely overwhelmed by George W. Bush. The Texas governor, son of a president, endorsed by all the party establishment, endorsed by senators, governors, with deep, deep coffers. And what does John McCain do? He goes to New Hampshire, and he holds 114 town meetings. 114 of them. And I I was at maybe a dozen of them. And to watch them, I mean, John McCain would stand up and answer questions fully and frankly. They'd say, when are we going to get a patient's bill of rights? John McCain's answer, we're not, not going to pass a patient's bill of rights as long as my party, the Republicans, are controlled by the insurance company, as long as the Democrats are controlled by the trial lawyers. And you'd see the, almost see the light bulb go on over voters' heads as, as this man was speaking so candidly and so bluntly. And what did he do? He upset the entire Republican establishment and all the cognoscenti of the press and trushed, crushed George Bush in, in, in New Hampshire. So retail politics of the kind of Jimmy Carter, I mean, the question is, can you go from retail to wholesale? Um, and uh, that, that's where Jimmy Carter's presidency, in my, in my estimation, failed. I mean, the, probably the defining uh, legislative issue, I guess, in that sense of Jimmy Carter's presidency, was the Panama Canal Treaty. And Jimmy Carter persuaded uh, through effort and intellect and, and doggedness and determination, he persuaded 67 senators to vote for it. And yet with the support of people like Bill Buckley and all sorts of editorial pay, he could not move public opinion. He was great on retail. He was lousy on wholesale. Um, and so even though 67 senators voted to ratify uh, the Panama Canal Treaty and return the canal to Panama, uh, Jimmy Carter could never move public opinion. Uh, so I, I, think, I think retail still does matter um, in, uh, in, in those two, first two states in particular. Are you seeing that today in this current Democratic field and conversely on the Republican side with three Republicans challenging President Trump? Yeah, no, the, 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 I think the Republican race is, is a fascinating race and, a, and I, I don't pretend to have a handle on it by any means, uh, but to see who... If any of the three does get traction, I mean, if a, if a Bill Weld, I mean, New Hampshire has shown a, a certain bias historically uh, for uh, for regional candidates. I mean, uh, Paul Songus of Massachusetts won it. Uh, John Kerry, Michael Dukakis, um, you know, won, won New Hampshire. They've shown a certain 
fondness at Mitt Romney uh, for local uh, regional candidates. And, and so Iowa's shown a certain provincialism in the past. I mean, Bob Dole of Kansas, uh, Jason State, won it twice. Dick Gephardt won it. Uh, Paul Simon ran a strong second there in 1988. Barack Obama came across the river from Illinois. Does a Joe Walsh uh, get any traction in, in Iowa, depending upon what he tries to do? Or does a does a or, or does a Bill Weld in New Hampshire? Um, and uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any any question that uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren is uh, you know is making contact with voters on a one to you know fifty one to a hundred. I mean, she's getting crowds. There's no question about it. But I mean, it is a, it is personal campaigning that I think has made a difference. So. Let me give you an analogy of where sure. the Democratic Party is, and then you can okay. agree or disagree. But if you look at the so-called establishment candidates, like Hubert Humphrey, like Al Gore, like Hillary Clinton, they all failed, although they won the popular vote in terms of Gore and Clinton, but mm-hmm. didn't win the Electoral College vote. The so-called insurgent candidates, those who ran against the establishment, John Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, they were not the favorite of the so-called party bosses. So what does that tell you about the Democratic Party as we now look at some of the more insurgent candidates versus the more establishment candidates in the current field? Uh, it's a good question and one I frankly hadn't thought about. Uh, and But because this is television, I'll answer. Uh, and uh, the uh, it, it strikes me that the establishment is a lot less powerful and influential than it was uh, in the in the in the time certainly of John Kennedy and, and Hubert Humphrey I mean going back to how delegates were selected I mean what what uh, Kennedy had to do was to prove to party leaders that he could win and that's why the primaries were that's why he chose the primary route that's why Wisconsin winning Wisconsin more importantly winning West Virginia 96 percent non-Catholic, uh, as we would say in Massachusetts, and 96% Protestant, as, as the people of West Virginia might view it, um, w- was so important. I mean, because the idea of a Catholic being elected, foremost in the Democrats' mind, was the fact that in 1928, when Al Smith ran uh, for president uh, after eight years of Republicans, uh, he uh, carried uh, eight states, uh, and only two north of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, both of which happened to be majority Catholic states and the only majority Catholic states at the time. Uh, so the, 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 the fear, Kennedy had to overcome that. And, and Humphrey, as I say, was never entered a primary in 1968. Um, so uh, I, I think everybody is now forced to go through the Iowa-New uh, Hampshire gamut. They can't, they can't duck it. Um, and uh, it's a it's it's a tough one. Uh, it really is. I mean, the thing that I think people fail to understand is everybody who runs for president, to some degree, has been a success in wherever he or she came from. Uh, the vast majority of them, they've won an election. They've mastered a constituency. They've they've understood the issues and the concerns of a of a constituency. Then all of a sudden, they're thrust into this totally foreign environment. I mean, they've. They've never spent time in Iowa and New Hampshire. And it's, it's, it's like a first date. I mean, you've got to go in and you've got to somehow persuade these people that, A, you're interested in them, you know something about them, you care about them, and you have some answers and that you're not a bad person. Uh, and it's a, it's a tough task. It really is. And not one to be uh, under, underestimated.
Such great historical perspectives. We're talking with Mark Shields, and we see you every Friday evening with Judy Woodruff and David Brooks. Is that totally impromptu? Do you prepare in advance on PBS? We, uh, the, the way we do it is on Friday, um, I'm told by an off-air producer uh, and uh, who uh, call, calls me and, and David and tells us what Judy wants to talk about. On uh, on Friday night. Now, uh, obviously, th- there are some weeks that y- you get a pretty good idea long before Friday Friday morning, and um, I uh, have prepared and and report during the week. Uh, and then there's an off air that same off air producer calls and each of us separately and asks us questions. Then that is given to Judy. So uh, Judy knows what David thinks, what I think. I don't know what Dave. I mean. I'm, could read David or, you know, from based on experience, have some ideas, but he's always quirky and willing to surprise. Um, so that that's in. And then we just do it live in the six. We do the show live at six o'clock from six to seven. Um, and uh, we, we we do it live. And uh, I, I I enjoy it enormously. I mean, Judy is a great, uh, a great host, great interrogator, great journalist. And and David, uh, I can say after 18 years, is a wonderful, wonderful partner. Um, I've been doing it for 31 years, um, and uh, David, uh, uh, in the, those 18 years, there's never once been a cheap shot. Um, I consider him a, a friend, and I have enormous respect for him. And you seem to have a really good rapport. I, I do, and I have to tell you a story about that, all right, about rapport. And that is that in uh, in 1974, before I became a born-again virgin and a journalist, I was working in campaigns, and I went to Arkansas there to help Senator J. William Fulbright, who was being challenged for renomination by a young upstart governor named Dale Bumpers. Uh, Dale Bumpers, I've never seen anyone like him. He was a brilliant candidate. He was at 91% approval. And uh, I, I had to had to find something, you know, that, there had to be some vulnerable point. Otherwise, he was going to crush Bill Fulbright five times, United States senator, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, a towering national figure, a man who would, as much as anybody, led the nation in changing its views on Viet- the war in Vietnam. And so I, uh, I had a chance to meet with Orville Faubus, uh, the longtime segregationist governor of uh, of Arkansas, and these are the moral issues you have to deal with in politics. And I wrestled with it for about three microseconds and agreed to meet with Orville Fathers. And I met with him at room 110 of the Plantation Motel, honestly, in downtown Little Rock. And I was looking for an icebreaker of conversation. And I said, tell me, Governor, how do you explain the fact that you alone, of all our Kansans, this is before Bill Clinton, been elected governor five times? No one else has been elected five times. And Orville Palmer said to me, Mr. Shields, I have rapport with my people. And I hesitated for a second. He said, imagine a lot of your friends up north call it rapport. Anybody who calls it rapport don't have rapport. So I, I knew I knew right then and there I was playing in the major leagues. <laughs> and I, I took up typing lessons the next day and decided to become a journalist. One of your good friends... Mo Udall, known mm-hmm. as Secondhand Mo, because he came in second in right. most of the 1976 primaries. Yep. Uh, I've I never known a more noble, likable, warm, and decent human being to run for president. And if he had a fault, 
um, it was that he was not convinced and could not convince himself. He was too self-honest that if he wasn't elected, that the Western world would not survive. Um, th there is a certain zealotry, uh, quiet, concealed, and covered by most presidential candidates, but that they are the answer. They are uh, the truth. And Mo uh, had this marvelous perspective on, on life and himself. Uh, he, was, he was decent, bright, courageous, smart, uh, but he could not convince himself that, that, that uh, if, if he didn't win, uh, that uh, somehow the, the weeds would grow in the streets and uh, uh, the country would come asunder. Uh, and I, you know, his greatest his greatest strength as a human being was, was ironically his weakness as a candidate that he didn't have that single burning uh, zealotry uh, passion. He also had a wicked sense of humor, which Wonderful. is one of the other reasons we yep. wanted to talk to you about. Sure. And so let's use our remaining minutes to talk about political humor. And right. this from the C-SPAN archives, 1984, a conversation in Arizona between former Senator Barry Goldwater, Republican, and former Congressman Mo Udall, Democrat. Oh, boy. Before we leave 64, Barry doesn't want to talk about 64, and I don't blame him. I don't want to talk about 76. <laughs> Although I, I ought to tell some Billy Carter and Jimmy Carter and St. John's and Plain stories. But Barry, uh, I think the other thing that made our state the way it is is we can laugh together and laugh at each other and laugh at ourselves. This guy was the target of more damned humor in 1964 than anybody, and he handled it better than anybody. You remember the old story that uh, Barry was making a new movie, with had the studios lined up, 18th Century Fox? Yeah. <laughs> had it on Hubert Humphrey. And then the other one I always remember is uh, he was supposed to be, you ask if he's elected and the Soviets uh, start a nuclear strike, what are you going to do? And he says, the first thing you do is get the wagons in a circle. That's right. <laughs> there was a lot of, that was fun. I'm, I bet you remember a lot about that yeah. campaign. I, uh, you know, it's been so darn long ago, 20 years ago. I've darn near forgotten about it. And, and uh, that's the only trouble now with with me in politics in Arizona, everybody's dead who remembers Iran. <laughs> and, well, uh, I hope I'll reach that situation well, soon. <laughs> I, I get tired of getting reminded of being beaten by Jimmy Carter. Well, uh, it's, that's not as bad as being beaten by Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> We're going to have a separate debate on that subject. Too. That's from 1984. Your laughter is contagious. Yeah, uh, no, he, uh, the, the two of them, uh, and, and Mo, Mo was uh, just marvelous. I mean, uh, his courage uh, was on display when he challenged uh, in the House uh, Speaker John McCormick. Uh, Mo was uh, again uh, an insurgent, a maverick uh, who broke. Uh, wanted the party to be more open and uh, oppose the not only simply the rules but the the war in Vietnam, uh, which Speaker McCormick was a strong backer of, and uh, he uh, went into the to the caucus and was crushed, uh, better than two to one in a secret vote among Democrats as to who'd be the next speaker. And when he came out, as Moe's classic explanation was that he'd learned the difference between a cactus and a caucus and. The difference is in a cactus, the pricks are on the outside. I mean, he was just a, <laughs> he was just a, a marvelously, marvelously, wonderfully funny man. Uh, Barry Goldwater, uh, I, I had, uh, I think, one of the last interviews Barry Goldwater gave in the United States Senate. Uh, 
uh, and he was cleaning out his office. And I went up there. We just chatted for a couple of hours, and uh, he uh, he had a marvelous sense of humor. He was a he was an enormously likable man, and he he told me there were only two people in all of politics whom he did not like. Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. And he reduced it to a very personal basis. He could not believe that Richard Nixon, uh, facing the problem of impeachment and, and possible conviction, lied, by Barry Goldwater's judgment, to his own daughter, Julie, and sent her out to defend him, knowing full well that he was guilty all the time. And, and Barry Goldwater said, how could he do that to that wonderful girl? Now, I, I've met Julie. I, I, I don't know anybody who's ever had anything but the most admirable things to say, admiring things to say about her. She's an admirable human being and, and smart, uh, married to David Eisenhower. Um, but uh, he, he, he could reduce it. He said, I, 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 I volunteered to go to the White House uh, with John Rhodes and Hugh Scott to tell Richard Nixon that there were no votes in the in the Senate for his, he was going to be convicted. Um, but my my favorite Goldwater story was uh, the the told that time was that he and Jack Kennedy this reminder of a different era were both friends. They came to the Senate in '52 uh, and they were they were friends across the aisle. And he said uh, if he were going to be the nominee in '64 against Kennedy, that they had agreed. Kennedy and Goldwater to travel on the same plane together. Okay, to go to a city, Denver, and they'd stand up before the same crowd and just debate education policy, or uh, then go to Detroit and debate Social Security. And Barry Goldwater, to his everlasting said he he probably would have kicked my ass, no doubt about it, because he was a better candidate than I was. But he said it would have been so good for the system, and uh, and he was right. And John McCain told. The great Barry Goldwater story, because Barry, as Mo pointed out, was a, a little bit hawkish on, on Vietnam, that uh, when John McCain won the election in 1986 to succeed Barry Goldwater, the two of them were together in a hotel room, and the returns came in, and it was apparent that McCain had won. And uh, Barry Goldwater turned to John McCain. He said, you know, John, if I'd won in 1964, you wouldn't have spent five years in a prison camp in Hanoi. And John, remembering Barry's hawkishness, said, you're right, Barry. If you had won in 64, I wouldn't have spent five years in a prison camp in Hanoi. I would have spent him in Beijing. But he was a... I just liked Barry Goy. I like most people who run for office. I, I admire them. It's a... You know, it, for most of us, life is a series of quiet successes and failures. If you and I are the two... Uh, final contestants to be the regional sales manager of Great Lakes Coat Hanger Company, and you get the job and I don't. When they announce that um, that Steve Scully has been rewarded, they don't add that Shields was passed over because of uh, uh, his erratic conduct at the uh, company Christmas party or uh, lingering questions about his expense account. But in politics, it's there for everybody you ever sat next to in study hall, or day, double dated with, or babysat for, uh, to know whether you you won or you lost, and and losing is tough. It's publicly painful, and nobody ever did it better than a fellow named Dick Tuck, who lost a state senate primary in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, when the returns came in, a reporter from KMPC Radio in Los Angeles stuck a microphone in his face, and he said, "Tell me, how do you feel, Mr. Tuck?" And he said, "The people have spoken. The bastards." <laughs> 
Let's turn to uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Would you say that he probably had the best timing in terms of his comedic talents next to John Kennedy? Uh, th- th- both of them. Both of them were superb. Ra- Reagan had a, uh, uh, and I, I didn't know. I didn't know Kennedy uh, at all. I uh, I did interview Reagan, and um, he uh, he had a comfort level about himself, Steve. That was was remarkable. I mean, beyond the humor, think about this. Ronald Reagan hired as his chief of staff Jim Baker. Jim Baker had run the last two campaigns against Ronald Reagan. He'd run George H.W. Bush's in 1980, where voodoo economics had become uh, the catchword of criticizing Reagan's economics. He'd run Jerry Ford's campaign in 76, uh, been one of the triumvirate, all the way to the Kansas City Convention. So, But Reagan was so secure, so emotionally secure in himself, he could reach out and say, this guy is better than, I mean, I, I love Mike Deaver, I like Ed Meese, uh, uh, Bill Clark, but this guy's the best, and and he and he was he was the best. He was the best chief of staff, and and that that showed up in his humor. I mean, Reagan, you know, Reagan, Ronald Reagan had a very casual work style. I mean, Trump has a very work casual work style, but they they oh no no he's he's working in the executive mansion. Ronald Reagan very rarely got in the office before nine. He was never there after five o'clock. So the press, we in the press being critical and nannies and all the rest of it. What, is he up to it? Maybe the job is too much for him and all the rest of it. Because in Washington sometimes we, we don't make, we don't man, manufacture cars and we don't grow crops. So sometimes when we can't measure output, we measure input. We measure, well, gee, I, I can't tell you what I did yesterday. Let me tell you how long I didn't do it. I got here at 7 in the morning, didn't leave till 9 last night. So Reagan, aware of this, and uh, stands up at a at a gridiron dinner and says, you know, they tell me hard work never killed anybody, but I figure why take the chance? <laughs> and at that point, I mean, he had laughed at himself about this perceived shortcoming. And for you or anybody in the press then to raise the same subject, you look like a carping critic and unfair. I mean, he had that, that was the brilliance of Reagan. I mean, he, you know, he could he could laugh at himself. I And, and it wasn't just joke writers. On the plane in 1980, one, one uh, TV guy came up to him and had a glossy photo from Reagan's movie days. And he'd been in a movie called Bedtime for Bonzo, where his co-star had been a chimp. And there he is in the eight and a half by ten glossy, Ronald Reagan and Bonzo the chimpanzee. And the producer said, we assigned this autograph at Mr. President. And without think without hesitation, Ronald Reagan writes, Best wishes, Ronald Reagan. P.S. I'm the one wearing the wristwatch. You know, <laughs> now, I mean you just you've gotta I mean you've gotta admire somebody who has that sense of presence and that sense of self. Well here are two examples okay. of Ronald Reagan's humor. First is he takes aim at Russia. I don't know whether you know it or not, but I have a new hobby. I am collecting stories that I can actually prove are told among the Russian people. They make them up themselves, they tell them between themselves, reveals they've got a great sense of humor, and they've also got a little cynical attitude about things in their country. And uh, one of these stories, the one I'm going to tell you, I told to General Secretary Gorbachev, and he laughed. <laughs> the story was an American and a Russian arguing about their two countries, and the American said, look, 
In my country, I can walk into the Oval Office, I can pound the president's desk and say, Mr. President, I don't like the way you're running our country. And the Russians said, I can do that. The Americans said, you can? He says, yes. I can go into the Kremlin to the general secretary's office, pound his desk and say, Mr. General Secretary, I don't like the way President Reagan's running his country. Mark Shields. Uh, no, he, he, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was uh, he, he, he was remarkable that way, and and he used humor enormously effectively politically. Um, and uh, I, I just uh, uh, I had uh, great admiration for him. Jim Jim Baker said something about Ronald Reagan that uh, always uh, stuck with me. He said he was the kindest, most impersonal man I've ever met, uh, which I, I always thought was a fascinating. Uh, uh, paradox, and uh, it, it just it hit me uh, in a more serious note when uh, Ronald Reagan was elected president. His grandson Cameron was two years old. And Ronald Reagan was president for eight years. In those eight years, Cameron Reagan never spent a night in the White House. He was never on Air Force One. He never went to Camp David. Uh, can you imagine your grandfather being president of the United States? And uh, you never, you, you never see him. Um, and uh, I asked Mike Deaver about it, and uh, Mike Deaver had a full explanation. He said, "You have to understand, uh, in Nancy Reagan's mind, Ronald Reagan's never been married before, um, and so there was a denial. So th- th- there was a remoteness about him, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was that was almost chilling. Uh, but he had he had that uh, that ability to." Uh, to laugh at himself uh, and uh, in, in public, and it's it's really once I've laughed at myself on this problem, then you know you become a carping critic if you then pile on you in the press, and it, it, it's a brilliant strategy. It's beyond just being clever or witty or funny. It's it's very disarming of your critics, uh, and and Reagan understood that, and he uh, uh, he he used it uh, he used it enormously effectively. Kennedy did it as well with his uh, on, on the question of money uh, when he was accused of buying the 1960 Democratic nomination. When he that famous telegram, telegram from his dad, you know, reads it and dear Jack, uh, don't spend a single dollar more than necessary. I'll be damned if I'm going to pay for a landslide. You know, <laughs> again. So Kennedy signed, it, laughed at it, and uh, that's it becomes you know it, 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 he's acknowledged it. Uh, and, and shown a certain comfort level with it. One other example of President Reagan's humor. I've always thought of the importance of communication and how much a part it plays in what you and I, what all of us are trying to do. And one day, a former place kicker with the Los Angeles Rams, who later became a sports announcer, Danny Villanueva, told me about communications. He said he'd been having dinner over at the home of a young ball player with the Dodgers. The young wife was bustling about getting the dinner ready. They were talking sports. And the baby started to cry. And over her shoulder, his busy wife said to the ball player, change the baby. And he was a young fellow, and he was embarrassed in front of Danny. And he said, what do you mean, change the baby? I'm a ball player. That's not my line of work. And she turned around, put her hands on her hips, and she communicated. (laughs) She said, look, Buster, you lay the diaper out like a diamond. You put second base on home plate. You put the baby's bottom on the pitcher's mound. You hook up first and third, slide home underneath. And if it starts to rain, the game ain't called. You start all over. <laughs> a classic Ronald Reagan story. A classic Ronald Reagan story. No, you're, uh, you're right. He, uh, 
uh, he had a had a special gift that it, it it didn't it, it didn't capture the self-deprecating at one point in his presidency uh, second term there was a real tension in the White House Don, Don Regan was his, his chief of staff and it was not working out and there was great tension between Don Regan and First Lady Nancy Reagan um, and uh, Ronald Reagan said look again at dinner with reporters he said look I you know things have been tough but uh, Don and Nancy have made a serious attempt to patch it up the two of them met for lunch just the two of them and their food tasters you know I mean <laughs> I mean that, that, again I mean uh, acknowledging admitting that the, there was tension and, uh, and difficulties and uh, uh, that, which you know it, it stands in stark contrast to subsequent incumbent presidents of Reagan who followed Reagan. Somebody else who you know, former Senator Bob Dole. Uh, At the start of the 2000 campaign, he was on David Letterman's program on CBS, and he said this. Let's, let's talk about the uh, the Democrats when uh, President Clinton uh, wraps up his uh, second term. And is it going to be uh, Al Gore? I think people are tired of Al now, aren't they? They, they kind of wanted Al to either go nuts or something, but he... <laughs> He did nothing really ever well, happen with Al, did the he? Thing about Al, he's exciting. Though. I mean, you really get you know. Uh, I, I, it's a hard choice whether to watch Al or C-SPAN sometimes. And, you know, <laughs> that hurts. Uh, that does hurt. <laughs> he he was a, he, he was as naturally a witty man as I've ever run into in public life. He Bob Dole, um, and uh, I, I don't know if it was his. It may have been his line that. Uh, Al Gore is so dull. His Secret Service name is Al Gore, um, and uh, <laughs> but he he uh, Bob Dole had had wisdom in his humor as well. I remember he once described the vice presidency, and we'll go through this ritual sometime next summer when all these people are seeking the vice presidency uh, on whatever tickets available, uh, and but denying that they're really interested in it, uh, you know, because it, it's one thing to be chosen, it's another thing to be seen seeking after it in an unseemly fashion. So uh, Bob Dole described the vice presidency, that it's like the last uh, cookie on the platter. Everybody says they don't want it, but somebody always takes it. And I just, I mean, he, he just, you know, he had a, he had a great, great gift of humor and a, and a wise man. And, uh, and I, I think, a, you know, I, I think a very admirable public figure. And finally, Mark Shields, you are known for your wit, for your columns, and also for your stories. So many over the years. Do you have a favorite? Uh I, I guess, boy, it's like picking among your children. I, I have a uh, a favorite personal story uh, about politics because I've always believed that politics is a matter of uh, welcoming converts rather than hunting down heretics. Um, it's addition, not subtraction. It's finding the 80% we agree upon rather than emphasizing the 20% that we disagree upon. That's that's what political parties are. That's what our politics ought to be. And uh, it, was, it was driven home to me just the Sunday before the 1968 California primary uh, at Market Street headquarters of Robert Kennedy. And we had all these bright-eyed, bushy-tailed college kids who were going to go door-to-door the following Tuesday. California has a wonderful law, which in every precinct they post the voting list, and they check off who's voted. 
So if you're trying to get people to vote, you can go at 8 o'clock, at 12 o'clock, at 4 o'clock, find out that Steve Scully hasn't voted, and go find him, knock on his door or call him and, and make sure. So Willie Brown, who is later to become the Speaker of the California House and uh, Mayor of, of San Francisco, uh, was charging up. Uh, this was his his assembly district we were meeting in, charging up these young, overwhelmingly white, privileged college kids who were there to go door-to-door -door for Robert Kennedy on Election Day. And he said, let me tell you, I was elected two years ago, this district. And he said, I went to every single door on Election Day. And I went to the final list, and it was 7 o'clock. And I looked, and I saw that Mrs. Harriet Washington hadn't voted. And I went back to Mrs. Harriet Washington's, and it was a four-story walk-up. And I walked up to the door, and I knocked on the door. And this beautiful black lady in her Sunday go-to-church outfit with her gloves on and her hat said, Mr. Brown, I knew you'd come. I only want to vote for two people today. And they said, uh, absolutely. And, and who are they? said, I want to vote for you, and I want to vote for Senator Goldwater for president. And she said, I gave her my arm. I walked her to the district. I don't care who else they want to vote for on Tuesday, if they want to vote for the fluoridation or against it, or you know, for right turn on red or against it, we're interested in electing Robert Kennedy. And I always thought it was a great political maxim and lesson for everybody involved. That, that That's what a political... Ronald Reagan understood that when... When uh, Haley Barber uh, got very upset, he was working as political director in the Reagan White House, got very upset about a Republican senator wasn't supporting him. Ronald Reagan said, Haley, Haley, that man is not our, he's our friend. He's our 80% friend and ally. We cherish him. We value him. He's not our 20% enemy. And I think that's missing from our politics today, uh, that, that understanding from Willie Brown and, and, and Ronald Reagan, that uh, parties are a coalition, that, uh, again, we're looking for converts. We're welcoming people to our side. We're not looking for heretics to banish to the uh, outer darkness because they don't meet the 16 out of 17 litmus tests that we're putting up that day. Have you thought about a book in all of this? Uh, I, I have, and... Uh, I, I did a book after the 84 campaign, uh, get wonderful reviews and, and minimal sales. Um, uh, as my wife said, very, very well-reviewed, very bad-selling book uh, on the campaign trail. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I haven't uh, – I've been married for 53 years to the most wonderful woman in the world, and uh, I, I don't want to put that in jeopardy in any way. Mark Shields, thank you very much for stopping by. We appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, wherever you download your favorite podcast, and on the web at cspan.org. We thank you for listening. <laughs>